Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Childhood History and Critique. I'm Pat Ryan, and this time I have a conversation with Kim Phillips and John Spurlock. Kim is a medievalist and associate professor in history at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. John is an Americanist and professor of history at Seton Hill University in Greensburg, Pennsylvania. Both are well-published historians of sexuality with an interest in youth. Notably, Kim teamed up with Barry Ray to write Sex Before Sexuality, a pre-modern history, in 2011, from Polity Press. John just came out with Youth and Sexuality in the 20th Century United States, from Rutledge. I brought them together in December 2015 for a conversation about their work and to address foundational questions in the history of sexuality. I hope you'll find this conversation as thought-provoking as I did. Take care. Well, John and Kim, thank you for agreeing to uh, join me for a conversation on childhood history and, and critique about your work and about the history of sexuality and, and youth. I thought maybe we'd just start out by having each of you tell us a little bit about yourselves. Okay, well, I guess uh, my intellectual journey, I guess I came to the history of sexuality through women's history, first and foremost, uh, with my PhD years doing a, a project, a, a thesis on young women in late medieval England. That's where the interest in, in youth came in, though I've been interested in women's history since I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. uh, and so medieval women was almost like my primary research subject area. Uh, you really can't study medieval women without coming upon sexuality pretty quickly. Sexuality really informed medieval culture's perceptions of what it meant to be feminine. Okay, so I was looking at young women, young women obviously they're, um, they're meant to be virgins because they're not married yet, and yet they are deemed to be sexually attractive, you know, nubile. Um, they're at an age that's highly, or that was highly valued um, aesthetically and, and you know, idealized within the culture. Okay, mm -hmm. so they're not actively sexual. They're not supposed to be. I'm sure many of them were uh, premaritally, but they're not meant to be actively sexual, but they are still defined in terms of uh, their sexual appeal. And then once I became a university lecturer here at um, University of Auckland, um, my colleague Barry Ray knocked on my door uh, one morning when I was still a relatively young lecturer and said, hey, let's teach a course on the history of sexuality together. So this is back in 1998. And so we devised a course, and uh, it's called Sexual Histories, and we've been teaching it together. We've taught it every year without fail since 1999. So we've taught many, many hundreds, I guess it's now thousands of young New Zealand students about the history of sexuality, starting with the ancient Greeks, going through the medieval period and early modern, and, uh, and then right through the modern period leading right up to the present day. So it's, it's a very uh, broad brush kind of survey course. And that's led us into some collaborative writing projects as well. We, we edited a, a reader of key 
essays in the history of sexuality some years ago, and we used that in our teaching. And we also wrote a book together on uh, medieval and early modern sexuality called Sex Before Sexuality. So they're the main, that's, I guess, the main parts of my history. That's interesting. So both, I, I just think of when you, when you said you, you can't come up, you can't study medieval women or, you know, women's life course without dealing with sex. And I, I, yeah. I think about the key words in English, mm-hmm. in, in Middle English and in Early Modern English around precisely that, the difference between a maid and a, and a mistress or, right. whereas, right. For, and, and it, and not that sex is not important for men, but, the other, the or distinguishing categories of men, but for men, the chief ones being separating men by property. Uh, mm. that, yeah, right. You know, right. and 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 obviously, property is incredibly important for women. I'm not, but the language is sure. matter, and yeah. it's right there. And the, right, right, the maid, wife, widow, uh, way of categorizing women was was just you know profoundly part of that culture. Relative yeah. to sex and me- and, and and marriage. That's, that's right, yeah, that's right, and the two go hand in hand, obviously, for that period. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, John, you're in uh, Greensburg, right, Pennsylvania? Yep, and uh, University. So, um, much like Kim, I uh, I got into this uh, in in my uh, PhD research. I had an interest in this this odd uh, development in the middle of the 19th century known as the free love movement and uh what little had been written about it had i i thought was not very satisfactory so you know i followed that and it was in major part a history of anti-marriage ideology in in uh, the 19th century in, in the u.s mm-hmm. uh but certainly i had to immerse myself in the way that the the, the that culture which was uh going through some some interesting uh, changes was was talking about sex, sexuality. The the next project after that was was one that uh, um, uh, women's history was uh, dealing with with women through their life course from um, adolescence, not their entire life course, but from adolescence to uh, middle age. Uh, the U.S. in the early 20th century. In doing that. <clears throat> I, I came upon what seemed to me something that was uh, anomalous in the, the literature. There, there seemed to be uh, at a at a point well after most uh, historians had said that the uh, the possibility for the kind of warm relationships among women that um, you know Carol Smith Rosenberg talked about after the period when those had been foreclosed, I found that adolescent women seem to be acting, you know, very much the way their late 19th century uh, counterparts mm-hmm. had been acting. They they uh, they talked about, uh, in, in many cases, other women in, in ways that were emotionally very uh, vibrant. And from their personal writings, it seemed like this was something that, in some cases at least, was, you know, physically expressive, too. So that little problem kept working on me and I after that that book was published uh, I, I just kept uh, pecking away and pecking away and um, you know I, I think I met uh, uh, Pat uh, because of that book but yeah. you know we, we, we uh, um, had a panel together but it was at really that time that I was still kind of developing this idea and as I as I 
kind of push that research both back and forward, I, I ultimately decided I needed some kind of an explanation of adolescent or youthful sexuality in the U.S. for the whole 20th century, you know, to make sense of this this one uh, thing that seemed at the time to me to be so strange. So that's that's how I came to this latest project. Um, I mean, Pat and I think I think I, our, our uh, panel was way back in 2002. Yeah. So that, this project has taken a lot longer than you know maybe any uh, uh, historian moving at a normal speed would take. But it's it finally is uh, came to publication this uh, this last August. And the title is "Youth and Sexuality in 20th Century United States." Yeah. Right. Well, can, congratulations on that, John. It's, Thank you. Yeah, I mean, you stuck with it and and brought it to fruition for everybody yeah. to benefit from. Yeah, I'm very happy, but I have to admit, I'm also kind of relieved. It's a <laughs> sounds like a big project. Well, you'd be surprised at how short a book came out of all that research. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but that's the direction of things, isn't it? There are, right. That's right. I mean, yeah. how that's many pub- how many publishers are willing to publish 800 books? Page books, right? Or oh, right. yeah, Ian Kershaw. You know, maybe they'll sign you up. But yeah, and obviously there are exceptions to the rule, uh, mm-hmm. you know, for that. But I don't think it's really what they're looking for. Yeah, I think you're right. So we we have a lot of diversity uh, between the two of you in that we have a 19th and 20th century historian uh, of, of of the United States and uh, a, a historian of medieval England, and uh, both, but both with really broad interests about sexuality, and both have uh, thought a lot about the life course, peer relations, and other things that are very germane to the history of youth. So I want to get a discussion going across that diversity, across that gap, and it's not something that I think we usually do. We're more comfortable, particularly in terms of period, I think maybe mm-hmm. more than anything else, more than geography or language or even subject matter or uh, genres or subfields, period is very difficult to cross. Yeah. Yeah. But if <laughs> if historians can't do that, you know, who can? <laughs> yeah. um, right. Because sure. not being able to cross periods would uh, sort of be anti, I think, to our larger disciplinary project, wouldn't it? Um, so that's one reason I've asked you to, to come together and I, I to really discuss some foundational questions. And I've shared them with you in, it, in advance. And we can go off script, uh, but I'll start sort of with the script, and we'll just see what happens. Kim, what in the this is the broadest question I think I could start with. Okay. What do you make? What have you made? How have you handled the term and concept of sexuality historically? Okay. Uh, well, I guess for me, studying history of sexuality is all about emphasizing diversity and change. I guess those would be the the terms that I would keep coming back to. Um, thinking about the ways that human cultures in different parts of the world in different periods of time 
all subject to their own social, economic, political, cultural pressures and norms. You know, how they form their uh, their norms, if you like, their uh, their rules, if you like, their cultural rules around sexuality and um, seeing how uh, one compares with another. So you're talking a moment ago about needing to think transhistorically, you know, get out of particular periods. I think that's actually really helpful for history of sexuality because the more you can uh, acknowledge change and um, difference, not only across cultures but across different historical periods, the more you can appreciate that diversity in human sexuality across time. So that those would be the key terms for me. So thinking about how human cultures construct sexualities in diverse ways at different times in history. That resonates yeah. with me. Can I, just to follow up, is yeah. the obvious parallel that I have used, and, and this resonates with me in terms of dealing with students and explaining the historical project, is that this is parallel to the anthropological right. project of, of understanding that however your living isn't the way it has to be. Right. And right. human beings are capable of a lot of possibilities. So do you feel like that, that part of it is that sense of diversity? Definitely. And diversity not just in place but over time. That's right. And we too uh, in our teaching, we also have made use of the same analogy you know, to think of, of history as a, a branch of anthropology, if you like. Uh, and I think students are, once they're thinking about history in that way, it's easier for them to click into that mindset of accepting diversity and not expecting to find uh, our own cultural practices and norms in cultures that are part of part of our our Western tradition, if you like. You know, so um, it might be. Uh, easier for some students to think, well, you know, what they do in New Guinea, you know, is going to be different from what you do in New York City, you know, say, but you can emphasize that, okay, but what they did in, you know, 5th century Athens, 5th century BC Athens was also profoundly different from what you do in New York City um, or what they did in 18th century London. And, you know, so start... uh, emphasizing that uh, those discontinuities, um, you know, it's always so important to to recognize that there will be similarities and continuities across history, but we, we find it most productive to, to emphasize difference. Um, and the anthropological model just helps kind of uh, introduce that way of thinking very, very well. Yeah. And John, you know, how would you uh, build on that? Well, yeah, I, I just wanted to comment that um, in reading uh, Kim's book, you know, Sex Before Sexuality, it's, it's a very – you know, one of the one of the things that I found so um, pleasing about it is to see them point out to historians who th- many of them are no smarter than I am. You know <laughs> that they're they're um, they they struggle with this uh, idea of sexuality, and and I think one of the problems that we face is. Um, trying to talk about something and having to not use the terms that we're comfortable with. Right. And, right. and then once you put those to the side, what do you do? It's, it, right. it becomes, 
And and so your your chapters, your subject, you, you know, each chapter would would kind of unpack uh, something that is in in some sense a comfort. You know, so you know we we um, uh, you know we have these these big you know scary terms like heterosexuality, but if if you, you're looking at it historically, suddenly it it just doesn't. It just doesn't quite hold together quite the same way, but, but right. you know, particularly you know, from from the the uh, the various uh, time periods you were looking at, there was a, uh, I thought it was a, a really a, a breath of fresh air. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, you know, you one of the things you you pointed out, which is which I have found to be true, is that as we get toward the end of the 19th century, there's this just mm-hmm. urge, this rapid urge to just Put people into these, you know, categories that. But even in the 20th century, I find that the, that uh, the, the you know the categories aren't quite matter uh, to the way people live their lives. Um, okay. You know, when I would talk to uh, people about the you know these young women I uh, uh, mentioned to you, there's a real tendency to say, oh well, they were lesbian or they were lesbian for a little while or something like that. But that's Unlike what these young women would have thought about themselves, it wouldn't have, mm-hmm. you know, in a culture where it was so pervasive to say that, oh, you, you know, you have this particular, you know, sexuality, which we can define right. in this way. We just they 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 would have had a hard time with that. I think. Yeah. There's a there's a line I'd like to read from Kim and Barry's book. Uh, that it's exactly what you're talking about. I love this line. I wrote it down because I, it's a simple, it's a simple comment, but it's, it's from page 42 of that book. One of the great problems with the history of heterosexuality and the entire chapter is, is problematizing the history of heterosexuality. Uh, one of the great problems with the history of heterosexuality is that we all think we know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> and then the, the next sentence is based, this is paraphrasing them. And, and grabbing the key, the key phrase in the next couple of sentences is, what if the very ordering of desire, which is a, an important way to define sexuality in a historically open way, what if the very ordering of desire was historical? Mm-hmm. And that's a, a sort of opening up. That line really grabbed me. Yeah. I think I might have to give Barry credit for that line. You know, <laughs> I think he might have been responsible for that that couple of sentences there. Yeah. Well, you right. see people, people are paying attention and mm-hmm. writing things down. <laughs> yeah. A term like sexuality itself, much like childhood, has mm-hmm. a, a really strong essentializing force. Right. But it's not so easy as historians to get outside of that force. But we can't suddenly stop being modern 20th century thinkers. Sure. Um, but how, if you could talk just a little bit about how your historical re- research has helped you confront and think about the essentializing force of something like sexuality as a concept. Mm-hmm. I'd like to hear about that. Um, we have to really pay attention to the way that in whatever period we're looking at, how they described sex and, and sexual desire and sexual behavior, rather than reading their words and thinking, oh, what they mean is X or what they mean is Y. I was just thinking about the medieval period. 
you know, the, probably the most important thing to do straight away is just leave aside the whole question of sexual identity. Whether mm. we end up coming back to that later, I'm not sure. I haven't seen any really compelling reasons for for going back to the notion of sexual identity in, uh, when we're thinking about the medieval period, but, you know, we should always leave doors open. Um, but when you're looking at the Middle Ages, you need to think about their concerns, not our concerns, and sexual identity is a concern that arises out of period from the late 19th century on, the rise of psychiatry, psychology, um, sexual categories um, that were developed by uh, Kraft Ebbing and others writing around that time, Havelock Ellis and so on. Um, so if you put all of that aside and then you look at medieval people and what they said and wrote about sexuality, then you get to recognise that they don't have a concept of homosexuality or, or heterosexuality, indeed, or lesbianism or, or any of our, our modern sexual categories. So how do they think about diverse kinds of sexual behaviour? So same-sex acts between men or between women, yes, they are counted as sinful, but so are a whole lot of sex acts between men and women, um, so long as they uh, are not what was called natural. And natural means it can be they're procreative. You know, they, they have the possibility in, in resulting in conception. So any unnatural, non-procreated sex, no matter who it's between, or it might be solitary. You know, <laughs> masturbation could count as, as an example of that too. Any unnatural uh, I want to jump in, and, and um, one of the things I found very interesting, Kim, in the book, again, was that uh, pecking order of sexual sin that yeah. you provided with right. with sort of things like masturbation pretty pretty high up and some of these right. other things like, you know, um, um, you know, or, or uh, sex out, you know, so uh, an ordering that really takes apart what I, I think – uh, an ordinary, um, you know, uh, person in, in the middle of the 20th century would have, would have, uh, you know, how they yeah. would have seen sexual sin or sexual right. deviance, to use a, a yeah. 20th century term. Sure. And, and, yeah. and part of the reason might be because there are existing popular narratives about what traditional sexual morality in the church, for example, is. Right. And those dominant narratives aren't very historically sound. Not just from a not from a church pro church or anti church perspective. Sure. They're just not good church history. Right. Even right. if we were giving, you know, priority to what the theologians are saying, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the high Middle Ages on into the early modern period, they're not accurate. Right. You know, a lot of the present day, I'm thinking about the big institutional uh, positions of the Catholic Church, for example. When I read a lot of those positions, they sound pretty 19th century to yeah. me. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, in terms right. of the inner logic and concern. Yeah. 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 So that's yeah. part of the value of, of, of studying or writing history of sexuality is realizing how recent a lot of we think of as the Western tradition of, of morality around sex, uh, how recent a lot of that is. Yeah. Yeah. You've been listening to part one of a conversation with Kim Phillips and John Spurlock on Childhood, History and Critique, recorded for the Society for the History of Children and Youth in December 2015.